Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Welcome to episode 12 of Foibles. Uh, we today are doing another biography of an actor, a famous Hollywood actor, old school. We just want to let you know and warn ahead of time that we're going to be discussing some serious themes as well as fun stuff. So there are themes of sexual assault, alcoholism, that's most of it. And generally pretty bad behavior. So uh, this is not going to be probably for kids, although there probably aren't any kids listening anyway. And uh, yeah, just wanted to let you know that before we head into our sort of exploration of Errol Flynn. Now, why we chose Errol Flynn, or I suggested Errol Flynn, I take responsibility for that, I do not know. <laughs> now I'm starting to regret it. Um, because he's a, an incredibly difficult uh, subject. He's polarizing. His personality is polarized. And so it's, it's very difficult to discuss him. And so the first thing I want to say to everyone is the films that we recommend are fantastic. And you shouldn't, even though he behaved badly in his life, don't deny yourself the pleasure of watching these fantastic films, fantastically entertaining films, because it really is the best of that person, the best of him and the best of all the hundreds of people who worked on that film and uh, is worth letting yourself enjoy them. Yeah, he really starred in some classic Hollywood, golden era, amazing films that yeah, they're they're more than the sum of their parts, and but we will still we're not going to sugarcoat the life and times of Errol Flynn because he's a very good example of yeah the toxic sort of masculinity and the the corruptness that Hollywood embodies. There is that. Um, so why don't I do? Why don't we just get started a little bit talking about you know getting the basic facts out of the way, and then we'll kind of get into that. We just kind of wanted to warn you this was this will be a little bit more like our Marlena Dietrich episode where. She was a very polarizing and complex, complex and toxic person, frankly. And oddly enough, I think Errol Flynn is very similar to her. He's got a very, very similar kind of uh, behaviors and so forth. So just know that's coming. All right. So anyway, Errol Flynn was one of the most beautiful human beings who was ever born. He was 6'2". He was gorgeous. I mean, look him up on the internet and you'll be able to see how not just handsome, but beautiful. Mm-hmm. He really was a, a, an exemplar of male beauty. And I think that that ended up being both a blessing and a curse in one's life, as these things often are. Because when you are so attractive and so beautiful, he was also intelligent and charming. And when you have all of that going for you, you almost don't have to build character. You know, people like that often get a ride, uh, unless they have really great parents or something, you know, who will help them and mold them and marshal them into adulthood. Why do you have to build character when everything comes your way very, very easily? And in in certain ways, it did for Flynn. And in certain ways, he was very, very deprived of parental love, of guidance, of understanding of who he was by his mother and his father and so he ended up kind of getting the worst of both worlds in a way too he had all these gifts that he never was able to really use for high art or betterment of the world he basically just rode along on a stream of adventure and bad behavior and getting away with stuff right and left 
because of his beauty and his charm. And he was born in uh, June 20th, 1909 in Tasmania. And he was known as the Tasmanian Devil. When he went to Hollywood um, and his parents came over after he became famous, his mother actually said to the press, this is a sign of how she was, she said to the press, he was a nasty little boy. Oh, <laughs> she said that to the press. Not like jokingly yeah. and not like with any caveats around it or softening it. Like she, was, she just said he was a nasty little boy. So anyway, he was a Tasmanian devil. He was born in Tasmania, and he was raised by a father named Theodore Flynn, who was a biologist, and I think might be called a marine biologist because that's what he seemed to primarily study Mm. was the sea. And his mother's name was uh, Lily Mary Young, but she changed her name to Morel. Ooh, okay. Yeah, something a little more fancy, a little bit more highfalutin, yeah. Yeah. And she was. She was that kind of woman, I think. She was very high-spirited. She had uh, a lot of fire, very fiery individual, whereas his father was a retiring, sort of non-present dad, which was very common at that time anyway, but his father seemed to be kind of intellectually introspective. So he was hardly ever there. He really didn't uh, spend a whole lot of time with Errol when he was young. And that shows up later in that Errol had just adoration for his father. He adored his father, the father who was never there. And then there was the mother who was always there, and they did not get along. And the mother, um, I mean, being a mother, I don't want to blame mothers for everything, but as the adult, as the parent, it is your job to try to understand and help your child. (laughs) Right. Not for the child to adhere to you, mm-hmm. you know, and except for rules and things that you have to set. But everything around that should be created or constructed in a way to bring this child along. Yeah, nurture them. Nurture them and, and help them be disciplined too. And she was not that way. She was, she, first of all, it's pretty clear she resented Flynn for being born. I mean, it was probably how she got uh, Theodore to marry her. Mm. But at the same time, she she resented his interference in her life. She was an actress, or not professionally, but she loved to be in plays, and she loved to go to town, and have, you know, she was a party girl. Here's this little brat in her eyes who's getting in the way, and it's pretty clear that Flynn was pretty much of a devil of a child. He was wild, clearly very intelligent, very willful. He very much had his own personality, and the right kind of parent could have really helped him become a very... A, a successful human being, not just a successful moneymaker. And she didn't do that. She basically oppressed him, put him down, criticized him. And one incident that happened when he was young, like maybe five, six years old, maybe, which is very standard thing that children do, is he and a little girl were in the basement playing mommy and daddy and exploring each other. And she caught him and You can just imagine screaming and yelling, apparently, accusing him of being filthy and nasty and horrible and da-da-da-da-da. And then she made him go to his father, who he adored, and tell him what he did. Mm. And so he never forgot that. I mean, he's still talking about it when he was 50 years old. Wow. Yeah. And he hated... I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of other things like that, because just one incident wasn't going to do it. Um, But there were probably a lot of things like that. And that's the one that he remembers because it was Sharp, most, yeah. yeah, the most painful, the most damaging. So that really was something he brought up all the time. And then later on, not much later, might have been after this incident or um, 
soon thereafter, he decided to run away from home because he just pretty much had it. And so he ran away. He was very little. And he actually made it to this farm. And he, he wanted to try to get a job. He's like seven. Aww. And he's going to this farm down there. Oh, I can do this and that. And, I, and he wanted to try to get a job because he couldn't stand it anymore. And he'd been missing for a day or two. So they'd noticed he was gone. Everybody's looking for him. And they were frantic. And when he came back, his mother actually hugged him. And this was like, he says, the only time he ever remembers her touching him in a loving way. So that just makes me so sad. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And he clearly had a very Dickensian kind of spirit, too. Big time. Yeah, he was he was definitely a entrepreneurial kind of spirit, if you will. He's not somebody who's really employable in a regular job, if you will. Yeah. He's not a night. He couldn't do it. Um, there were things like, too, that he was extremely curious. He couldn't get along in school. He couldn't stand school. He couldn't sit at the desk. He couldn't stand the studying, reading the books. He was terrible in school. He was absolutely horrible. But he was really fascinated with the world and fascinated with certain things. For example, his mother apparently did teach him to swim because both the mother and father were very much water people and they lived mm-hmm. right on the coast. And he just took to it like nobody's business. The water really was his element. He could swim. He could boat. He understood. Every, he just understood it and at, a, at a visceral, intuitive level, everything like that. Um, so he was, in, he was fascinated with anything to do with the sea. He, learned, you know, he could just learn all that stuff. And then uh, there's this other incident that he relates where he was a child. We'll give him this. Um, well, I don't know if you know that. I think it's liver that geese can't digest. It just, like, passes right through their intestines, and they poop it out. Mm. So he took this piece of liver. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's horrible. And he tied it to a string, and he fed it to a goose, and then he took that and he fed it to another goose and another goose and another oh, goose. Wow. And he had all these geese lined up with strings running through them. Oh. Which is really kind of an amazing thing for a young child. Yeah. And he did very creative. Yeah, it's very creative. He, I mean, he didn't have any sense that he was hurting them, apparently. I mean, yeah. at that age. He, he was just so full of curiosity. And, of course, and his father saw this one and then he got wailed on rather than explain to him that he was hurting something yeah you know and so when you're constantly being wailed on when you make a mistake it really it has a it can have various effects on a person it can make you become suicidal and sink into yourself it can make you do this well for him it made him defensive he made him very facetious and flippantly defensive and and made him more resistant to authority and more likely to transgress so it started really early this is his way his parents handled him just took him on that route that's my opinion but he also had a you know pretty creative life too I mean there was a like I said a lot of the swimming there was a lot of physicality running playing and then his mother did these plays and he was often in the plays. so there are photographs of him dressed up in these wild period outfits you know as a young child and he would be in the plays, but it didn't take. It wasn't like he loved doing that at that point. I don't know whether he really loved acting at any point, even though he was very good on screen. It was kind of a means to an end. Yeah. So anyway, and also I find it's pretty interesting. I'm going to just jump in with a few facts here that Flynn often had money problems. He was not good with money and he was not good about money. He, you know, he would put on that he was this very good, honest guy, but you know, he would cheat people. <laughs> he didn't no problem cheating people. And as we said, he had a lot of bad behavior. So he's, he just was what one might call a satyr a maniac, which is the male equivalent of a nymphomaniac, mm-hmm. which is where we kind of bring in that Marlena idea. So he had a lot of you know sex addiction, if you will. And if you look at his parents, his mother had affairs, his father had affairs, 
and at some point uh, around oh like in the 19 early 1920s his father had been a professor at the University of Tasmania things didn't go well and his father was accused of financial misdealings hmm. and that he had taken money that he shouldn't have taken essentially and so things didn't go very well there was conflict so he ended up then moving to London and I think he ended up being hired at a university in Ireland or something where he ended up staying so he ended up leaving uh, Tasmania because of these financial dealings so you can again see the seeds of the behavior so anyway they moved when Flynn was probably I'm not sure how old he was but he was you know he had been going to school in, in Hobart and then he ended up going to London with his parents and they put him in a school there called the Southwest London School so he's probably oh I don't know 11 12 years old and he ends up being in a boarding school and they just take him drop him off father goes to Ireland mother goes to London he's abandoned Hmm. Again, he's abandoned. There's nobody there, nobody there to help him, nobody there for him to, to support him. He's just there on his own. Bad behavior, just constant bad behavior, stealing. And he claims that he had all kinds of sexual rendezvous with the maids and stuff, which I think he kind of made up. Apparently, the evidence is not really there except for his own mythomania. And Flynn does like to exaggerate his badness. But there's another side of that as well, the um, young man, becoming a young man, budding sexuality. But honestly, these... English public schools were known for, how can I say this, for for a little sexually abusive, abusive behavior, but, you know, like, they, they called it fagging there, where they, you know, the, the younger boys had to shine shoes and clear, you know, do all kinds of hard work for the older boys, and, and, and then it was like hazing, and you have to do this and that and the other, but there was a lot of sexual stuff, too, as well, this sort of unexamined non-overseen kind of behavior among the boys and the teachers. And apparently Flynn did say that someone was trying to basically have sex with him. Uh, and he resisted. He was a big, he was a big kid. He, he got tall pretty fast. And he was pretty strong. And he said he fought that off. Now, how true that is that he had fought it off? Um, what happened exactly? He doesn't say. Um, were there other instances like this in his life? But the, clearly there was some kind of sexual abuse or grooming going on in his young life, which again, that kind of history will often lead people to act out later when they're adults, uh, unconsciously if they've never dealt with it, which men, a man of his class and time, anyway, that was something that he did mention. And I think it's instructive for his later behavior. So anyway, he's at the Southwest London College and then his parents go back to Australia and so he goes in, into school in Australia now uh, to the Sydney Church of England Grammar School. And he stays there for a couple of years. Again, he makes all sorts of claims about his riotous behavior and having sex with chambermaids. And it, it probably could have happened at this point. Doesn't really matter. He, he got experienced at some point here. Probably too young for his own good. And he was thieving a little bit, pilfering here and there, getting into, getting into um, fights all kinds of misbehavior to the point where uh, he did get expelled when he was 16 mm. from the school. And they said apparently it was for pilfering. He claims it was because he was having sex with the chambermaid. <laughs> sure. <laughs> which, which I'm sure he thinks reflects better on him. So he gets uh, expelled from the uh, grammar school when he's 16. So then he goes out and he's he just decides, I've had it with school. 
can't do school anymore. He doesn't go back to school and he's sort of out there. And his parents weren't really rich. They weren't supporting him, giving it, so he had to get money. And he's only 16. So he ends up getting a job as like a junior clerk at a, I don't know if it was a shipping company or um, various accounts say different things, or a woolen merchant, but anyway, in a, in a business. So the last thing he's really capable of doing, right? And he hooks up with some guys there, and there's like a, a whole, I guess there's a gang called the Razor's Gang or the Razor's <laughs> Edge Gang, and uh, they're pretty violent, and they go and they, they do burglaries, and Ooh. he gets kind of hooked up peripherally with that. And uh, apparently, according to the one source I read, one of his buddies ends up getting killed, getting knifed to death. And so he says, well, this is probably not a good place to be. Also around the same time, he's about 18 now, he's fired for pilfering (laughs) from the cash box at Uh work. Yes. So they fire him for stealing money out of the cash box. And now he's 18. And now what is he going to do? You know, uh, things... Things just aren't working out for him. The world doesn't work for him. And he's not able to in any way adjust himself to try to get along in the world. So what he decides is he's heard that there's gold in Papua New Guinea. And he wants to go out there. And he basically, he's he's a fortune hunter. He wants to make a whole boatload of money without really having any skills. So he goes out to see if he can get some gold. And he gets there. He's got no money. He's got like two shillings or something. He had like a pathetic amount of money. So he, he ends up getting there and he's trying to figure out what to do. But the thing that he that he has to his benefit is he has reasonably well educated, even though he fought it. He's very intelligent. He's very personable. He's very good looking. So he's just the kind of sort of white male person that the, colo- that the colonial office would love because he's just their kind of guy, right? He's the right class. So the district commissioner of the colonial service hires him to be some kind of officer. And there are pictures of him in his pith helmet and his, you know, with his whip and his whites and everything. Hmm. There's not really a record of like kind of what he did, but he made, you know, okay amount of money, enough money to eat and live on everything. Continued with all his, his bad behavior. He claims he got fired because he was sleeping with uh, the wife of an officer, which very well could be. Mara, apparently, was her name. And so then he has to go and find another way to make money. This He had such a checkered wow. young life. I mean, oh, my God. So then he gets hired as the foreman, and he's like he's like 18, of a copra plantation, which I guess is coconuts. And so it's a plantation, but you can imagine, it's colonial. Who's the workforce? You know, it's the oh, native peoples. Yeah. And they're not being paid what one would call a fair wage. It's, you know, pretty much kind of in forced servitude, if you will. I mean, it was not, it was pretty nasty for them. Not straight slavery, but. Yeah, exactly. But kind of like sharecropping wasn't straight slavery either. But it was a lot of the marks of it and a lot of the disadvantages for the people who are the workers. Anyway, he did that for a while. And then. That he wasn't he wasn't capable of it. He didn't know what he was doing, and it, that kind of all blew up in his face. And there was, according to some sources, there was some violence going on and fighting, and you know him being the head, he was like leading them against the workers, and huh. he did that for a little while, and then that didn't work out. So then he meets some guys down there, and they buy a boat. Now this is Flynn's. I mean, he should have stuck with this. This is his metier: a boat. He's <laughs> on the water. He's with guys. Of his own class and type, pretty much. And they're sailing around, they're fishing. So they take dynamite, throw it in the water, 
<laughs> Sell the fish, catch them, take them back. <laughs> dynamite, <laughs> dynamite fishing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that was something wow. they would do. Yeah, and so of course it would stun everything underwater. It was it's a very destructive way to go about it, but very efficient because all the fish just they they either die or they become stunned, and then they just float up to the surface and you just scoop them off the surface of the huh. water. So they did that, and they also rent you know would take people out uh, as a charter boat and so forth. So they did that for a while, and then what happened was. Something happened with the boat. I think it got caught on a coral reef, and they had to get it off. And there's just—it's uh, all detailed, and it's all—but it's messy. Basically, um, none of these other guys had any money. Errol lost all the money he had trying to save the boat, and that all went to poop. And then, then he goes out into the jungle and he starts hunting for feathers. He's looking for the bird of paradise so he can kill the birds, take the feathers, and then send them back for hats for milliners. Big money. Those feathers were worth a lot of money. So that didn't work out very well. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. He really explored every avenue impossible. And then then this is the worst one. The workers, like at the copra plant, they have to get those people from somewhere. So he became one of the people who was trading, essentially, people. Mm. And um, bringing them in, I mean, and I read a, a description of it. So it's not exactly slavery, although it's been called that. But it's like now where these people try, they're, they're really poor. Money. They really need to make money. Like like the Mexicans maybe who, who might come over the, to work on, yeah. on, in the factories and farms and so forth. And they're not treated that well, but it's right better than earning some money. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and, and then he, the, the go-between. Finding a middleman, yeah. Right, and he's a middleman. And so then he gets money for bringing these bodies in, which is just, it's such a distasteful thing. I, I, I was really torn about whether to even talk about this because I mean he did you know he did a lot of distasteful things but for me this is just one of the most heartbreaking and distasteful parts but I think it is part of you know and he admits it I mean he doesn't deny it yeah but then again I think he also blows it up to even more than it was but other sources have backed this up that this is definitely a job that he did the job that he did so that didn't, you know, and that, that wasn't working really well. And then he ended up working, and I'm not sure where in here this happened. He worked at a sheep ranch. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you know that traditionally, they would, if they had the male sheep, uh, they would castrate because you don't want all these breeding male sheep. And the way they would usually do is they just take the old ram, lift him up, and bite the balls right off him. What? So he did that. Yeah. What? I know. It's a thing. bite him off? Yep. A lot faster than you know, snipping and all that stuff. Just chomp them right off. Oh my god! Isn't that gross? That's fucking bizarre. It's the grossest thing. And I'm, I'm sure they didn't wash the hindquarters very much. You just and he did that. Oh my god! I know. That's that's way that's like so far a step beyond just like slaughtering an animal or something with a tool. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, totally. Holy shit! I know, but it's it's just a thing that they did. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe it was. A lot faster, I would well imagine. Probably. And probably also, you know, then it becomes a macho thing to do. Ugh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would imagine. It'd be like, oh, don't be a, don't be a, you know, a yeah. wimp. Don't get scissors, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he did do that. I mean, the guy just, he just, in the, just a couple of years that he was in Papua New Guinea, he was just all over the place. I mean, it was so disjointed. He would, uh, he tried tobacco farming and gold panning. And while he was doing all this, he was constantly on the grift, if you will. Yeah. He would do all kinds of things to cheat people out of money. So that decades later, people still remembered him and were pissed Whoa. about him. And he, you know, and he told them, he says, hey, 
I'll forget if you'll forget, you know, or, or whatever, this kind of thing where he still owed people a bunch of money, you know, from cheating them. Like, for example, one guy, while he was the middleman for bringing the the uh, native workers in, he he would give money to the person who brought them over, and then he'd take them and bring them to the plantation, then he would get money. Oh, it's just such an awful thing. But one of the things he did was the one of the last boatloads of people, he gave the guy money. I'm, I'm putting air quotes around money. And the guy later realized that they were uh, St. Louis World Fair tokens, not actual coins. Oh, wow. Yeah. And apparently he made up some kind of, he says he made up some kind of machine that would like paint so that they, you put in a, a base coin or a lesser coin and it would come out gold, but it was just painted. Yeah. And of course it would run out, you yeah. know, the paint soon. And he, and he got somebody and he sold it to them and then he took off. And of course, then they found out later what a total scam it was. So he, that's the kind, I mean, not a likable guy yeah. in many, many ways. <laughs> Straight up criminal. <laughs> yeah, totally. So now I'm going to balance this with the other side, which is a side that, if not saying he's forgivable, balances it as a human being. And the other polarity is, uh, as his friends would say, and a lot of people say, he was an extremely sensitive individual. He's very, very, very sensitive. And he didn't get the nurturing he needed, which to my mind, it shows that he grew up with a weak core. He was very sensitive, very intelligent, and very able. But he never, like I I call it character, but he never got the foundation to build any inner strength. So he was always reacting. He was always, he, he couldn't stand firm in himself long enough for something to build. Or he would start to build something and then he would do something to destroy it or crumble it or make it not work because he he was just always a very young child inside and just didn't have judgment and didn't have inner strength. But at the same time, he yearned to be well, he, he yearned to be a writer is what he really wanted to do. Mm. And he's, uh, he published, I think, three novels, two novels. One was called Beam's End, was the first one, which was about um, sailing. I mean, they all have to do with sailing. Uh, Beam's End. And I haven't read any of these. I couldn't get copies of them. They weren't in the library, and they're not in print, and they didn't have any a books. So I, I haven't read that. But while he was in Papua New Guinea, he was writing a diary. He wrote newspaper articles, you know, would send them into newspapers for columns and things, and they would publish them. And so he had all of that going on. He had a keen appreciation for art. He loved art and painting, in particular painting and the visual arts. So he really had this this ability. And when he could find a way to be comfortable with someone, say, a male friend, for example, because he, he just never trusted or liked women, he would give them money. He would help them. He would stand behind them. He would try to help them get out of scrapes. Um, so he did have a certain loyalty to other people and did see that. And he really wanted to be, he wanted to be good and he just didn't have the capability of it. So that I think that's the other side of it. I guess we should add, he was vibrant. Oh, yeah. Alive. He had joie de vivre. I mean, he just, he had mm-hmm. a life force in him that that's what comes through on the screen mm-hmm. that just made him so attractive. Absolutely. And you can see it like a, we watched part of a 
documentary sort of about his life, you know, and there are interviews from very old Hollywood people that are talking about him and sharing stories. And some of the stories are even the content of the story are like, that's kind of messed up. Like yeah. that prank, that's a fucked up prank right there. Right. Or whatever. But they like, they love him and they almost can't see that it was messed up because they only see like... The, the humor and the, like, sort yeah, of... They see it from his point of view. Yeah. He had that kind of, that ability to bring you along in his yeah. point of view. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Such charisma, yeah, which is really fascinating. I don't know, the whole idea of charisma, which I think Merlene Dietrich had, too, and yeah. which could only, even, like, the kind of stars that Hollywood had at the time could only really exist at that, I don't know, it was so set up to just perfectly find those people with that charisma and that mm-hmm. life force and... Um, and put them on screen. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because even, even people who are very great actors couldn't necessarily make it in Hollywood. You know, it's different now because it, we've got so many other ways for people to, to bring their art forward. But back then, yeah, mm-hmm. it was the silver screen and you had to just pop off that screen. And yeah. he did. And so did Marlena. And that's very interesting because really if you look at their lives up to this point, Marlena was, I, I'm using Nymphomaniac just as a... Shorthand, maybe it's the wrong sex addict. I it's like a should placeholder say. for placeholder. that whole complicated for, mess of yeah. For a person who just is driven to have sex, even if they don't like it, even if they don't like the person, even mm-hmm. if, if there's something that it gives them in terms of status or inner okayness or power. Because for Marlena, as we said in in our other series, for her having sex was about even though she would subsume herself or you know become denigrate herself yeah denigrate herself these men would then fall in love with her and go crazy for her and then she would just kind of reject them yeah and she loved the trappings of the relationship too like the letters the really like romantic yeah yeah all of that the 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 german drawing of oh oh, you know that yes exactly the romanticism so all of that fed her not the relationship itself whereas for flynn it was also about power so she had the power over the men, and then they would end up suffering. He had the power. The women would would come to him in droves, and he would also seek them out as well. And he'd have sex with them, and then he couldn't maintain it very long. Even, like, women who he liked, and he never ended up despising, which were very few, he couldn't maintain a relationship with them. He, he just couldn't. He would get bored, is what he would say. Mm-hmm. But essentially, if he couldn't if he couldn't exert power, that's that's what he wanted. Because it's... If we're going to be very Freudian about it, it's a way to get back at his mother. It's a way to have power over women when mm-hmm. women have had power over him. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about his first wife. That's going to bring up a lot of things about women yeah. in power. <laughs> Jesus, that's going to be a good one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so anyway, he's doing all this all this bad stuff. Can I just say, like, how is he doing all of these things in Papua New Guinea? How big can Papua New Guinea be? Like, every, he must have been so notorious on this island. But... Well, he was, and eventually he had to leave. Oh, wow. He absolutely <laughs> had to leave down under because he was, he could have gotten killed. Yeah. I mean, that's, he was really, really in bad odor down there. And there were probably the kinds of people who would take, you know, actual physical vengeance on him, much less getting getting sued and so forth. So he did end up having to leave, and it was just very lucky that the time things were starting to really come to a head, things broke for him. And all of a sudden, the fates turned. And he had, um, on the boat that he had had with these guys before when they were chartering, they'd been chartered by a film crew who wanted to do um, basically a sort of ethnographic film about uh, the people of Papua New Guinea and the nature and the river. And so they took them up to all these really dangerous places and they got all these films. And while they were filming and doing it, 
Errol Flynn would kind of be, you know, doing his boat stuff. Boat stuff. He would be <laughs> steering and hauling and looking looking ahoy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever actually did a jig, but he'd be just doing his sailor stuff. And he would be caught in the frame. And as they and when they went back and looked at the film later, they go, "Ooh, he looks good. He looks good." So after he was caught uh, on film, unbeknownst to him, and the directors uh, or filmmakers saw how great he looked on film, they called him up and asked him if he would play Fletcher Christian in Wake of the Bounty, which is the story of the Bounty Mutiny. It's very interesting because, ironically. Flynn always claimed and believed that he was a descendant of one of the mutineers of the bounty, Young, his last name, Midshipman Young or something like that. Apparently, no, there's no evidence to really support this except their family legend, but it really fits with his seafaring Definitely. identity, you know, and that was very important to him. So it's, it's very interesting that his first role in film is as Fletcher Christian in The Wake of the Bounty. And so that was in 1933. Flynn is only 24 years old. Uh, you know, young, beautiful, but I have to tell you, first of all, <laughs> they did not have a lot of money to make this film. And the film itself is clearly kind of an old black and white film that needed maybe a lot of light to really catch the image. And they did not have a lot of light. So it's really muddy looking. So it's not a pleasure to the eye. What would you say about the acting on this? I would say it's like a reenactment in a yeah, sort of low low grade documentary, uh, historical reenactment. You know where yes. they don't actually have actors acting with terrible acting, mm-hmm. terrible. And Flynn isn't on very much. It, it's it's really kind of chunked up episodic. There's like this one bit where the guy is telling the story in the tavern, and he's all like woohoo, and they're drinking and blah 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 blah, and then cut, and then they'll be in this cabin, and it's just this cabin with Bly sitting at a desk, and Flynn standing next to him in profile haranguing him and talking and then they talk back and forth and then they go woohoo blah, 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 back at the tavern da, 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 dancing da, 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 and then back to the, yeah the, and then sort of on location shots of just the wildlife right yeah. probably the stuff they they filmed when they were on flint i think you're right yeah 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 people uh, uh, uh native peoples along the the shoreline uh you know in their and their uh, huts and so forth that they were living in and just cut to it and it, of course this was in australia not Polynesia, but I guess close enough as yeah. far as they were concerned. <laughs> it's exotic. Exactly. Quote unquote to, exotic. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So anyway, uh, and, and they did not have a lot of budget. So Flynn's, they put a wig on Flynn <laughs> that is the most awful looking wig I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, just Google it and look for, just look at a picture. You don't want to watch the movie. Just look at the picture. It's, what, I don't know, it's hard to, it's like, it's like a, like a cap. Yeah, like a long cap. Yeah. Oh, it's so awful. It makes and it's hard to to sully his beauty. And but yeah, his face stands out very starkly and like, yeah, he, it's really like he still looks. You know, you can tell he's good looking, but it really, yeah, it doesn't. He's got it, no it charisma tracks, yeah. at all, and nor does really anybody in this film. No charisma, nothing. And his acting is—he just shouts and talks like that. Just everything is emphatic, and uh, but uh, but uh, and that's it. And his face is always screwed up in a in a in a facial expression of concern or anger and there's just nothing no acting no nuance no scaling of the performance at all he's terrible and he said i didn't know what i was doing you know he just got up there and said the lines at least he said the lines so anyway they took this back and and then that was the end as far as he knew that that was going to really kind of be the end of his his deal and then 
the gods smiled on Flynn and someone saw this and he was recommended to a filmmaker uh, who had come down there, talent scouting, to go to London hmm. and, and do film there. So by um, he, went, he went to London, he's 24, didn't have any money, anything like that, trying to scrounge to get work, because really nothing materialized for him. And he got very lucky that he was hired by a theater group in Northampton. And it was the Northampton Repertory Company. And a rep company does, you know, they would do a different play every week practically. You know, they did all kinds of plays. And so he got into this company, and he both wrote plays and acted. And when you see him from Wake of the Bounty to the next film he's in, which is Murder at Monte Carlo, which is an English film that he did. That's the second film he did. The the difference is amazing. He suddenly knows how to present himself to the camera. He knows how to angle his body. He knows how to modulate his voice. He knows how to hold his body without his arms just stiffly at his side. He has com- He has absolutely, in that 18 months he was with them, completely learned how to act, how to be in, in, in uh, do performance. It's amazing. Totally. I, I don't really remember Murder at Monte Carlo very well, but um, uh, certainly in the next one he's in, it's incredible. It's like a, watching a different per- the next feature film that he's in. Right. Um, it's like watching a, a different person on screen. Absolutely. He's just uh, clearly he had talent mm-hmm. to do this kind of thing. He does. They didn't turn him into a great actor. They turned him into a competent actor with buku charisma. Mm-hmm. So what, that's just a great, a great combination. He looked great in a suit. Yep. <laughs> Indeed. So. So he ended up uh, working with this repertory company, which doesn't get mentioned very much. They just kind of go right from Tasmania to Hollywood. But mm-hmm. there's this whole a period in England where he's living, scraping by, probably doing a few cons. You know, that's Errol. Probably. <laughs> On the side. Just like with a bunch of women. That's <laughs> Looking all good that. in suits. Looking, Looking good in tights. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So um, anyway... Um, the uh, murder at Monte Carlo is it is a, a murder mystery, and he's wearing a suit. It's a modern day uh, thing, and this is 1935. So we're looking at Errol as 26 years old. So he's right in the mid 20s, just at prime time, really. And so a, a talent scout from Hollywood sees him in Murder Murder of Monte Carlo and goes, he calls Jack Warner, Warner Brothers, and said, "You got to get this guy over here, get him under contract. He's you know." He could be a future star. Hmm. So, obviously, he's willing to take that money. And he goes over, and he ends up, again, cooling his heels, waiting around, trying to get work. And he ends up, they give him a bit part, a tiny bit part, in a in a Perry Mason movie adaptation, movie adaptation in 1935 called The Case of the Curious Bride. Yes. And people always say, oh, his first role was as a corpse. Only partly, because there is a part where he punches somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's a corpse. He's a flashback, yeah. Yeah, he's a flashback. <laughs> and it, no no lines at all. And that's all he plays. And so he'd blink, you miss him. You might not even recognize him in that. And then he was in um, another film called Don't Bet on Blondes, which has uh, Warner Bat not Warner Baxter, William Warren is the star. And... He had a very short period in Hollywood where he was kind of the king of the, like, sort of the B-movies. He always would play a lawyer or a, a rich guy or a, a philanthropist. Or a, and so he, had a, he was a, a stage actor and he had a lot of, a lot of energy. Hmm. Um, nobody Ooh. knows him today. 
I kind of enjoy him. He's not much of a, he's not really much of an actor. He's he's a personality. And he anyway, Don't Bet on Blondes is is it's a good film. It's a good yeah. film. It was very enjoyable very, and and mm-hmm. short. I mean, these films were like 65 70 minutes long. So they just zip right by. Yeah. You pack up some plot in there. The the lead woman is sassy and we like her, I believe. Yes. The, um of Don't Bet on Blondes. Yep. And uh so Errol Errol does get lines in this movie. He plays um, one of her her boyfriends at some point, or a, a man that she's dating, and he's charming in that one. And he, but he plays a character who doesn't usually play. as kind of a he's a little bit he's a little bit clueless. Yeah. He's sort of the innocent. He's a, a nice guy who's dating this woman, and uh, William Warren he wants to marry her, and so he plays pranks on him, shall we say, to get him out of the way. And he does, but it's a, I think he has maybe two short scenes in this film. But again, looking good in the suit, and he's got lines, and he's full on. So, so he's doing a few things. But then, what happens is, and this is all in the same year, it's all in 1935. What happens is, is their uh, Warner Brothers is going to do an epic uh, swashbuckler called Captain Blood, which is fantastic movie they finally created and they needed to have uh, a a lead because the original um lead was supposed to be robert donat or donay however you, i think it's donat anyway he's an english actor pulled out or uh, couldn't do it at the last minute and they're going oh we're gonna get uh so somebody had the bright idea to said okay let's try this new guy errol flynn because he says he can he can do all he says he can fence he says he can He's good on boats. He's good on boats, whatever. He looks good in tights, right? Yeah. So they put him in the tights, they give him the sword, and they put him on the ship. And he's he's acting and acting and everything. And apparently, he was terrible. <laughs> he was absolutely terrible because he was so nervous that he was just, like, hysterical practically. Just terrible. <laughs> and But after a couple of weeks, he calmed down. And then they started seeing these rushes, and he was fantastic. And they said, oh, my gosh, he's so great. So they went back and they refilmed those first scenes uh, so that he could do them and be good. Nice. <laughs> and then they put the film together, and from then on, it was like one of those sudden, quote-unquote, sudden rushes into fame where he went from nobody to, like, A-list, hottest star ever the night after it was released. Wow. It was amazing. People are coming up to him and, and, oh, you're so great. Oh, you're so amazing. Ah. And the thing is, is, of course, praise like that for Flynn is like <laughs> the worst thing in the world yeah. for him. But he was fantastic. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, um, so the, shall we talk about the film a little bit in depth or do you want to save that? I don't know. We could talk about it now or we could wait till we do. Well, let's be honest here. Let's be forthright and say we are going to give you each our top three. And for both of us, this is number one. Of course. This film, Captain yeah. Blood. We'll talk about it a little now. We'll probably talk about it a little later. Yeah. See yeah. how it goes. But he basically, he plays this character who's a doctor become a swashbuckler. And so he he's really like a very strong moral presence mm-hmm. in the film too. Absolutely. So he's not just like an adventure guy or whatever. He really... Um, there's like depth to the character. He just, yeah, hit him at the perfect time in his life. He's just radiant. Uh, as we said, some of his best qualities come through on screen and you get to see his potential fleshed out uh, with all his men and his crew and stuff. He's the leader of the crew and you can really see like... He's a natural leader. You can yeah. see they, they gravitate toward him. Mm-hmm. He's not taking control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
he's jovial and like kind and like understands each person in his team, mm-hmm. but he's like also uh, nobody fucks with him. And, like, <laughs> uh, you know, and he's charming. He's he's kind of a cavalier ladies' man, but he's also at the same time, unlike his real Tru- self, truly romantic and truly capable of a bond. Yes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you could see that and. Um, part of that might be his leading lady too, because in real life he actually they took to each other and they did yeah. like each other, and that was maybe one of his most positive female relationships. Yeah, that's Olivia de Havilland, and she was only seventeen, unbelievably, uh, and had become a big star. So there's a little bit of an age gap with them, but apparently it's given out that she was the love of his life. She was the one, and she held out, wasn't going to have sex with him, whatever. But they bonded and they were deeply in love with each other. But I think that Olivia de Havilland, who is still alive, by the way, 101 years old. Wow. Um, she was too smart. I think she, I think even at mm-hmm. 17, she was just too smart at, to really give herself over to him the way other women had. Because it, I don't, I honestly believe no matter how much he truly loved her, it would have gone sour because he just wasn't capable. Oh, I totally agree. And I think, yeah, she she does, like, it comes across in film, too. She has a kind of maturity to her mm-hmm. and everything. And I think, yeah, she she really wanted to love him and wanted to love the best of him. And the best thing for that was to kind of keep a distance from it well, to, to a certain and, degree. And, to, and to, to survive herself mm-hmm. without going through something horrible. And at the time, uh, well, we're going to backtrack now. So we're, we're at the first big Hollywood film where he's become famous. So he's 26 years old. We talked about Olivia de Havilland here, but one of the reasons that they didn't get together and why she was smart is he was married at the time. Right. Of course. And he had met uh, a French actress named Lily Damita coming over on the ship when he was coming over to to Hollywood. And she was coming over as well. And and at the time, she was the well-known person. And she was the one who was earning the money and everything. And so they met on the ship, kind of romance, blah, blah, blah. They get to Hollywood. Things heat up they end up getting married and this Flynn didn't pick his mother but he picked this woman who probably was just like his mother in terms of how she related to him Mm -hmm. because first of all he cheated he probably cheated the first day they were married he cheated before they were married I mean he was completely incontinent sexually and she uh, was this hot-headed French woman she was like one of those women who says, I will kill I will kill you if you cheat on me. Oh wow. And they would have fights. They would have physical fights and throwing things at each other and you know bruises and beatings and uh, on each other and then they would have hot passionate sex. It was like that 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 sex born of fury and and, huh. and so forth. And so in a way it kept them their marriage going way longer than it should have. Way yeah. longer. And so they, they kept having um, these, these sort of makeup sex sessions and the screaming and the da-da-da. And at this point, Flynn had become famous. Now, he was more famous than Lily, and he was making a whole bunch of money. What happened was they have one of their sessions, they have sex, and then later she comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. And she says, you screwed me, now I screwed you. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, she did it. She got pregnant on purpose to get him because now... You know, not only if they get divorced, will he he'll be you know stuck paying child support, yeah, child support, you know, alimony, alimony. Yeah. and and in those days, alimony, women got the spousal support usually yeah. until they got married again mm-hmm. or they died. So that's what happened, and we know that this is true because we see her behavior throughout the rest of his life. What happens is she becomes an absolute fury, and I mean that in the classical sense, where the furies would chase after someone who was guilt-ridden and tear them apart limb by limb, and she did this to him financially. But 
as bad as Lily Demita was in her behavior and throughout the time she continued to be harassing she was unforgiving she um, blackened his name to his son Sean Flynn is the name of the child they had although Sean Flynn much like Errol Flynn adored his father his absent father who did not show up for his visitations very easy to adore somebody that you don't know at all right and didn't show up for the visitations but when he did show up he was you know all fun and gifts and he thought he would teach Sean to be a man by taking him to a prostitute for his first sexual <laughs> thing and buying him a box of condoms and this is this is what he thought was being a good good dad but what happened was and this is Errol's own damn fault because this is where the weakness in his character comes in and the weakness in his ability they got divorced and they signed a contract so it wasn't a court order where the court said, okay, I am awarding you this blah, blah, blah. They actually just had a contract that they signed for their divorce. And in it, he would pay her a certain amount of alimony. I forget how much it was. And I think at the time, with all the money he was earning, it wasn't, it was very reasonable he could do it. It was something like, I don't know, $1,800 a month or $1,200 a month. But in addition to this, there was the provision that it would be tax-free. So he would have, so there's a formula you apply. So basically he probably would have had to pay maybe, if it was 1200 he might have had to pay 1800 And the 600 would go to the government and she'd get the 1200 tax-free. So it was like that. So he paid the tax on it. Right, exactly. And, and the thing is, is when you pay tax on something, you have to pay tax on that tax. So if you had to pay 600 taxes, then you have to pay taxes on the $600. And then whatever that amount is you pay. So there's actually a formula that, that has to be applied to, to determine what the amount Zeno's is. Zeno's paradox of tax. It is. It's exactly <laughs> what it is. You, you, you hit that asymptotic point that you're never going to get Jeez. to the end of it. So that was one thing. The other thing in the contract was that her alimony would be adjusted upward as his pay went up. And uh-huh. he's expecting, oh, you know, I'm going to earn shit loads of money. I'm, he's 26. But it can never go down. Oof. Yeah. Wow, he was really not very smart on Where that contract. Where was his flipping lawyer? Yeah. You know, either he didn't have people who were just idiotic and did not support him, or he just, okay, fine, I'll sign it, which I could believe. Yeah, for sure. Because he later said that his attitude was, hey, I bring in the money and other people take care of it for me. I don't want to have to deal with that stuff, which ends up just biting him big time in the ass because as time went on, what happened was his income did not increase. It went down, yet he still owed the same money and the taxes. And Lily, every time he got behind, every time he didn't pay, she took him to court. And she won every single time. Because the problem with what he did was if the court had said, all right, here's my order. And let's say he ordered this very thing. The court had ordered it. It came from the court. He could go back to the court. He could say, Your Honor, blah, blah, blah. Contested. I can contest it, or I'm asking for a modification because I'm not making as much money, da, da, da. He could do the argument, and the court would have the authority to make a decision. Well, when you make a private contract, especially in those days in particular, there's nothing he could do because he couldn't say, well, this contract is unconscionable. It's totally not fair. Probably wouldn't work because he signed it and he had access to lawyers. He had uh, the ability to get advice Mm -hmm. and he went ahead and signed it anyway. So when it's an agreement between two people, the court doesn't intervene because there is a principle of freedom of commerce and that between us, we have this agreement, this commerce. And so the court is very rarely ever going to step in and say, oh, this contract between two private parties, we're going to change it. It's not going to happen. So he got screwed or he 
let himself be totally destroyed by this. It destroyed him financially. Huh. Beyond his own behavior as well. Right. He was um, he was a con in terms of money. He would really like take whatever he could get, but not because he was uh, canny or savvy about exactly. his finances. Exactly right. And and that often is the case with people who are who are that way. I mean, I had a uh, an employer one time who you know, oh, I can manipulate people, and he was always kind. Of, he wasn't ever it wasn't ever really illegal, but it was always kind of a little cheaty the way he would do things, and he would get around things and da da da. But in the end, he got totally financially ruined by somebody who came in and was more manipulative than he was. Yeah. And and you just see that that's a real pattern. So anyway, he right now he's in love with Olivia de Havilland, sleeping with whoever he can get, and having this huge conflict with his wife Lily Demita, who's now pregnant and going to be giving birth to Sean Flynn, his only son. And just FYI, Flynn ended up having four children and this was his oldest son. So all of that was going on at this time and it was just the high life. He bought a boat and he bought a house where he lived with his male buddies. And he and he would say to his male buddies, you know, I can love a man, but I just I can't love a woman. And then he then of course did the homophobic two step back going right. you know what I mean, not like that. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No homo man. No yeah, homo. Yeah, yeah. 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 No kissing on the lips, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so people do, there are people who are like, was he gay? Was he not gay? Yeah. But it really seems pretty clear that he wasn't, he just had an entirely fraught relationship with relationships. Right, with exactly, women. with women. And the thing is, is and this is common too, you know, there are a lot of people who have, a lot of men in particular, especially in the old days, um, where the wife, mother was so oppressed, and then she gets a son. Mm. You know, unconscious, probably, anger and rage at the patriarchy, at the men, even at her own husband for the oppression. So the poor boy gets it unconsciously. Then he ends up hating women. And we just got this lovely cycle going here, you know? So it's very common for men at that time, especially, to be very comfortable with other men. I mean, I'm very comfortable with other women. Mm -hmm. We understand each other, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it makes a lot of sense. So he could really create bonds of friendship, but he could not create bonds with women, even even Olivia de Havilland. And so he lived at this beautiful house, and he bought a Gauguin, and he had a Gauguin in his <laughs> study, and he wrote his novel, Beam's End, and, you know, things were going great. And he also was drinking like a fish. And they called the house Cirrhosis by the Sea. Cirrhosis. Cirrhosis of the liver, as yes. you know. Cirrhosis by the Sea. Wow. And his buddies, one one guy, he wrote a book, a Buster Wiles, who was a stuntman. He lived there with him. And it's just very interesting. He ended up having really, if you want to look at it, an entourage of guys who did his bidding. I mean, Buster would go and get him women. Like, he, he'd see somebody go, oh, she's pretty. I want to get him. And so Buster would approach her. Uh. So he was basically a pimp, really, for him. You know, he'd have naked women running around the house. Like, he would have... And he loved these terrible practical jokes you're talking about. Like, where, oh, he invited all these upstanding people from the community. And then he had naked women come out and serve dinner and stuff. And, I mean, just... It was always kind of distasteful kinds of jokes, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, ones that maybe weren't all that funny for the people on the other end of it. But Buster thought he was a great guy because, I mean, he got all the leftovers from Flynn. So he was getting all kinds of women willing to... And perks. And, and perks and alcohol. And and so they had all of this going on. His buddies would live there with him. So, uh, for example, David Niven was a very close friend who's another actor. I don't think you're too familiar with him, but David Niven was a very suave English guy. And he lived there with him for quite a while. And there were, I don't know, there were other people who would hang out there. 
one of which was John Barrymore. Oh. Yeah, yeah. John Barrymore was quite a bit older than Errol Flynn. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are not totally familiar with him, he was considered the great actor of the, you know, sort of like the Laurence Olivier of his time, if you will. He was known as The Profile because he had quite an amazing profile. And he was a drunk, total drunk, um, probably addicted to drugs, like Errol. Errol was doing, you know, heroin and alcohol and all that stuff, smoking weed. So they would all hang out there and have wild parties with women, hot and cold running women, as they say. Do you think Errol was, like, drinking from, like, a really young age? You know, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not, I don't hear lots of stories about his drunkenness when he's younger. Okay. Yeah. It might have been something that he took up almost socially when he, like, came to Hollywood. As soon as he hit Hollywood, he was definitely drinking. John Barrymore would, would hang out there, and, and Barrymore was near the end of his life. And he was in that terrible state that Errol will be in in about 25 years of bloated, can't remember anything, having kind of dementia, wild behavior. I mean, John Barrymore would just like go and pee out in the front yard and pee on the carpet. And I mean, he was just gaga, you know, kind of gone. And I he, had no idea they knew each other. Oh, yeah. As a side note, you didn't tell me that at all. Oh. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, Flynn, Flynn I mean, he considered Barrymore his yeah. mentor. Because Barrymore had been a great actor. And his mentor in drinking as well. As well. Well, yeah. And I, and see, this is, again, bringing it up again, but the weakness of the character inside Flynn, if he would bond with someone, he would, I think, unconsciously just imitate them. Yeah. So just like with his dad. You know, his dad was an intellectual and writer. He wanted to do that. Well, here's uh, Barrymore. And he would say he didn't care about acting, but everyone who really worked with him when he, and he was like acting like a normal human being, said he really cared about being a good actor. He really did memorize his lines. He really did work, but he didn't want anybody to know it. Because when he got bad reviews, it would really hurt him. It would really hurt. It would tear him apart. Mm -hmm. And so he was too sensitive, and he didn't want anyone to know that he was sincere in any way. And then that ended up kicking back at him, because then people would be very rough with him because he didn't seem to care, Mm -hmm. you know? And then he would act out by being mean, but with these practical jokes and that kind of thing. But Barrymore, he he did adore Barrymore, and maybe that's one of the reasons he started drinking so much. Hmm. He adored him. And then there's this, it's very interesting. I've read several accounts of this. There's this story that when Barrymore died, the guys at Cirrhosis on the Sea um, decided, oh, let's play a prank on Errol. We'll go get John Barrymore's body, and we will bring him back here and put it in a chair and with low light and look like John Barrymore's ghost or John Barrymore's there and freak Errol out. And Flynn says this happened, and David Niven says this happened, and and became a story that everyone told. But Buster Weil said that never happened. And if you think about it, the guy's at a mortuary. He's in the funeral home. He's in the funeral home. And even though this is Hollywood and these are stars, I really find it unlikely that they would have let them just take Take his body. body, Or that they would have broken in. I I just don't believe it. I think the story is too good. And Buster Weil said it was like, he said that he came up with it. Wouldn't it be funny if we, like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it just became such a thing. Everyone started to remember that it really happened. Wow. <laughs> so it probably didn't happen. Collective memory. Yeah. And which I'm glad because I think yeah. even though Barrymore was. Oh, that would have been really hard to actually see, I think. Yeah. yeah that would be. I mean, a dead body isn't like he would be. I don't know. Yeah. And, and just. Oh, so, just John as... Barrymore, grandfather. Oh, okay. Drew Barrymore. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Drew Barrymore's grandpa. So that was what was going on. This house was just this, these wild, wild things. 
I don't even want to get into a lot of the details. I don't know if I should. I don't think but, we need to. The... No, not unless there's a, like one story or two yeah. that like really stand out to you as interesting. But Lily never lived there. Yeah, they were kaput by then. Oh, funny. Also, another side note: <coughs> uh, Errol actually ends up portraying John Barrymore much right. later in his career. Yes, he does. And so, uh, so, so we're going along, and we've had this fantastic Captain Blood debut. Debut, and he's uh, the director of this is Michael Curtiz. And he does many, many more films with Michael Curtiz. They did not get along very well. Curtiz was a, an old-world European guy, and he he was a man's man, I think. He wanted to discipline her. Errol, even after that first film, as soon as he got to be a star, he's like, oh, they're not paying me enough money, and he would like not show up on set. There's one story, it's later on, but... Errol was uh, filming in uh, on location somewhere, and he just got on a plane and went to his house in Jamaica and didn't show up. And he, he said, well, if you want me to come back, got to give me more money. Uh-huh. So he starts to pull his, like, he, old ways. He did this all the time. After that first film, he just, he never felt he was getting paid enough. He was always trying to get more. And he would do these things by not showing up, holding them, holding the picture for ransom. Waiting, of course, until the picture was filmed enough that they had to have him. Of course. You know, that kind of thing. Which is not enforceable as a contract. You can't do that. But in practicality, they had they needed him. They had to have him. So that was happening. Curtis kept trying to keep him on track. And as Errol got worse and worse and worse, like he would not show up in the morning. He'd show up at noon. He'd be drunk when he showed up. Um, all of these things would happen. Curtis would try to get him to be a flippin' professional and... That really kind of rubbed them the wrong way. Also, Curtis was not a particularly nice guy. He wasn't gentle. He was pretty rough. And so they, they didn't get along, but they did a lot of films together, a lot of good a films. Lot, yeah. Some of the, I think, his best yeah. films, really. Absolutely. And he was with uh, Olivia de Havilland. And we're going to see her. He I think he did like nine, seven films with Olivia de Havilland, I believe. Mm-hmm. So the next film he did with her in the next year was The Charge of the Light Brigade. So that's... um. That's a historical picture. Yeah, it is. It has to do with a half a league, half a league, half a league onward, forward the Light Brigade, which oddly enough is about the Crimean War, but what, seven-eighths of this film takes place like in colonial India? Yeah, somewhere. And so there's all this whole story has nothing to do with the Crimean War. And then at the very end, they go to Crimea and they uh, are the charge of the Light Brigade. So what's that? Who's that poem by? Is that Tennyson? Tennyson? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then, and then he has a few more films. I don't want to go too much into detail. 1937, he does one, two, three, four, four films, um, none of which are particularly noteworthy, except there was one called yeah. The Perfect Specimen that we really enjoyed. We had a hard time kind of getting a hold of it, or it's like very no, not no, we, well known. No, I think we watched it on YouTube. Did In we? fact, yes, I believe we watched it on YouTube. Wow. We couldn't rent it. Oh, God, good memory. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so you watched it on YouTube. It was good. Yeah, but it happened to be one of our favorites out of his entire canon, and it's really, um, it surprised, a lot of his films kind of surprised me because I'm so used to him being um, either the swashbuckler or the fa- fantasy or, like, historical, whatever, but he ended up actually doing a lot of pictures as, like, a modern man with his hair slicked back and a little pencil mustache and suits and stuff. So that was surprising to me. So that's, like, this film. Yeah. So uh, rather than going through his filmography bit by bit, I think um, we'll just talk a little bit about kind of what's going on at this time. He hits his mark as a swashbuckler. 
He makes these films. Then in 1938 comes the other film that maybe even it's more famous, and more people like this better than Captain Blood, Mm. which is The Adventures of Robin Hood. He becomes the quintessential Robin Hood, and I think there's very few people would say there's anybody who's better than him yet Yeah, has appeared. Mm -hmm. So it's 1938, so he's like 29 years old. Again, looking great in those tights. Mm-hmm. He's got that, that life force, Nejvoie de Vive, and there's Olivia de Havilland, and he's yeah. deeply in love with her, and she's so beautiful, and it's got the whole cast of the Warner Brother character actors. I mean, and it's it in is color. perfection, and it's in Technicolor. Yes. Yes. So, man, it's bright, <laughs> it's baby. It's great, and there's a lot of ho, 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 yeah. ho kind yeah. of hearty laugh. Hearty laughing, because they are... They are the merry men. Yes. <laughs> and really, um, um, there's this one, and I'd say up through 1939, that's kind of the peak, really, I think, of his film life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really that first five, first five, six, five years. six years is yeah. when he really, really does the great things. Was He was having the kind of troubles we were talking about with, like, showing up late and stuff, like, even during this time. Even, even during this time, though not as bad. Yeah. Not as bad. And if he could get behind it, he would be good. Mm-hmm. He hadn't gotten to the point where he couldn't be good no matter what, even if he wanted to be. He was, you know, still had some control. He could have had some control, but he, he really, really didn't. And this period also um, of the, War- the Warners period, or the early Warners period, I should say, was really quite a, like a team. They were like a pod because he had most of his films were directed by Michael Curtiz. And Olivia de Havilland was very frequently, was by far more than anyone else, his leading lady. And, and they, they had great chemistry. And there are even some films where they're not opposite each other in terms of romance. He's not going to get the girl. But they still had great energy together mm-hmm. on, on that screen. And then the other thing that they had going for them is they had this team of character actors who, they were in every film, and they, they played the same thing every Just time. Pepper them in, yeah. But they were so good. They were so just perfectly right and you'll see uh, particularly in Robin Hood you see a lot mm-hmm. of them and one of the ones is Alan Hale Sr. and anyone who knows Gilligan's Island the skipper was Alan Hale Jr. this is his dad and they actually look quite a bit alike <laughs> same build and Alan Hale a Sr. had been a song and dance man which you wouldn't believe in vaudeville yeah. <laughs> he's and quite tall he's quite very tall. burly very yeah. Yeah, very burly blonde he plays little john in robin hood right and he fits that bill perfectly and he's so uh bluff and hearty yeah. and strong and and yet kind of naive and funny and yeah, yeah 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 nice guy and and he was one of flynn's cohorts and uh they got along extremely well as one of his guy friends and there is one story i guess we should tell it where I think it was during, I forget what movie, I think it might have been during um, Robin Hood, where Flynn, he's so gross. Anyway, he had a costume guy oh, make, yeah. make a prosthetic penis for him, and he had him make it really like like 12 inches, 16 inches long, right? And so he was sitting naked in his trailer with just a, a towel. towel over his lap and uh, has to have the uh, the director, I think it was, come in. And and he says, oh, hey, old, he used to old sport. He's the only person I've ever heard of other than Jay Gatsby who would say old sport. And he's, oh, old sport, okay, old sport. And he and he just, while he was talking, he just casually lifts the drape off his lap. And the director's like, blah, 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 whoa. And, like, and then yeah. they kind of laugh, you know. Uh, and so and he, so he says, oh, okay, get get Alan Hale in here. Get Alan in here. Let's Let, pull it on him. Let's pull it on him. Let's see him come in. So Alan, Alan Hale comes in, and he's in his costume, whatever, between takes, and Flynn's sitting there, and he does the same thing again. And he pulls the drape off his lap, 
lap and he says, without even skipping a beat, Hale looks at it and says, I'll take a pound and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So they had really banter very much on the same wavelength. Yes, exactly. So that was exactly the kind of thing Errol would Mm -hmm. like. Alan Hale, I think, is one of the the stalwarts behind Flynn. And then um, there's some other character actors who we, you know, just really, really adore. And I think... I didn't mention him. I, I can't believe I didn't mention him when we talked about Captain Blood. He's not in a lot of the film, Lynn films. He's in like three or four of them. Who I adore, Basil Rathbone. Yes. Well, we're going to talk more about this film later, of course. Yeah. Uh. They did, so they, yeah, they did three together? Three. They did uh, Captain Blood, Robin Hood, Dawn Patrol. He's wonderful. <coughs> He's absolutely wonderful. We adore him. And unfortunately, it just breaks my heart that his his career was ruined by playing Sherlock Holmes. Oh, really? Yeah, because once he played Sherlock Holmes in those films, he just couldn't catch a break. <laughs> couldn't get another, a, another Did he do a good job? Him. Do you think he was a good Sherlock? Oh, he, yeah, he was fine for the period. Mm-hmm. I think he did a good job. But he was so much more. He was a great swashbuckler. Yeah. In fact, he was the top swordsman in Hollywood. He was known as the swordsman, uh, for real. Mm-hmm. Not just fake sort, you know. He was really great, and he just had a great voice and tenor and drama. He, he was a stage actor. I don't want to get too much off on Basil because we're going to have to do a series on Basil soon. But he had uh, training, a lot of training in theater, and so he had a very sonorous, deep voice coming mm-hmm. from deep in his belly and his diaphragm. And and yeah, he was not mo- a modern actor. Mm-hmm. He was an old. He was like a John Barrymore period kind of stagey actor. But I just adore him. I just, he's so focused. Yeah. So good. And he has, yeah, he really has, he's like a flavor. He's a little more eccentric. Like if, uh, if, if Errol Flynn is like vanilla, like he's the shining, he's the golden boy, vanilla boy or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, Basil Rathbone is like, I don't know, strawberry basil or something. Yeah. He's like, he's like uh, card- cardamom. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> like cardamom ice cream. Yeah. Like he's so, wonderful. And he's, um, he plays a French pirate, I think, in Captain Love Blood. But he always, he ends up in either, an antagonist role or not quite antagonist yeah he's, but he's he's really amazing because he's um not cartoonish at all and he just really like it resonates this likability even at the same time that he's dangerous and he's uh yeah absolutely and then there's one other guy who i you know i never really paid too much attention to him but he was his name is patrick knowles and he plays will scarlet so mm-hmm. he's a good looking he's sort of a a poor man's Errol Flynn, if you will. He often uh, played Errol Flynn's younger brother a couple of times. Charge of the Light Brigade. And Dawn Patrol. Yeah. And he play or he plays his, his sidekick as Will Scarlet and all that. And it's interesting because he apparently had everything that was necessary to be a star, but he doesn't have the star quality. You can just see he doesn't have... You look at him and his face, oh, he's good looking. Not really interesting. Mm-hmm. Not really interested in looking at him or hearing him although he's completely competent and he did a you know very good job so patrick knowles is another one you see and, th- and there are others we'll talk about these movies maybe more individually and get into all the, the characters i don't want to belabor this but yeah so we're th- so this is really i think the first sweep of errol's career where he's on the rise yeah he's on the rise or he's risen and he's just popping at the top there and then what happens is he starts, you know, doing, um, he does a, you know, a couple of really good films, like The Dawn Patrol, which we will see later. It's a World War One flying ace movie. And then he does a whole series of, for some reason, they kind of take him off the swashbuckling 
track. Track, and they put him on the western track, and he becomes he has he did like three times or four times more westerns than he did swashbucklers. Yeah, which he really did. Incomprehensible to me. I mean, maybe they were just so much more popular at the time, but yeah, he did. Well, they made money, and he said he didn't understand it either. Yeah, it didn't make any sense because he didn't have the capacity to change his accent. True. <laughs> and so he had this accent, and he's there, and he's, he did a couple with Ronald Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> and we might have to get into those, because those were in politically very interesting, because yeah. they had to do with the Civil War. But, yeah, so he had just had this period where he had, was kind of obviously making money and a big star, but we look back at the films. They're not special. You know, he has a few uh, with Olivia, and then she ends up mm-hmm. not, not working with him again. Yeah, Ellen Hale's done a lot of them. Yeah, and, yeah. He doesn't have the same moral strength as like a cowboy i guess i don't know it's part of it for me that's part yeah they don't give him the that kind of character yeah that goes on for a few years and then we hit world war ii and world war ii shifted everything uh in terms of bringing him to uh different kinds of movies where he's doing uh, espionage movies and uh fighter pilot movies and you know basically the political landscape of right. movies change and uh, propaganda movies and that kind of thing and so this is a Sort of a few years here, we have a different part of Flynn's life where a couple of things happen. So I I feel like we should take a break and come back to this because uh, we're going to start it at a a movie he did. It's a very, very good movie called Gentleman Jim. We learn quite a a few uh, important facts about his health. Starts moving him into another phase of his life. And if this becomes part one, then join us for part two. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Graham, cheese sandwich. Graham.